Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 takes us back 14 years from the events that were recorded in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are not neatly chronological. The reason for that is that when biblical writers deliver to us the word of God, they're not just trying to dump on us historical events. They often structure their books in a way that is deliberate. And so the arrangement of these six chapters, two, three, four, five, six, seven, parallel each other. Two parallel seven, three parallel six, and three and four parallel each other. And in the middle, as we've talked about in the past, these godless heathen kings declare the truth about the true and living God. So now we have chapter seven, and chapter seven, in many respects, parallels similar events that we read about in chapter two. And it's back into the reign of Belshazzar. And this particular vision is a vision that Daniel has about what is going to come in the future. Now keep in mind, from his perspective as a sixth century BC believer. So this doesn't mean that everything he's going to talk about that's futuristic is now future for us because we're over here. We're looking back 2,600 years. But for, from his perspective, much of this was yet future. So he has a dream. Essentially, he has a nightmare. How many of you have had a nightmare, a bad dream? We all do. They say that on average, people have a bad dream every week. Some might have them only four times a year. But I think we all know what it's like to have a nightmare, a bad dream. When I was a little kid, there was this giant Snoopy with fangs that came through my window <laughs> and tried to eat me. This morning I woke up and I'm like, that was a weird dream. I dreamt that I jumped in my car and somebody had ripped the stereo out and stolen it and ripped the dash, the, the glove box out and stolen it. Kind of a bad dream, maybe not a nightmare. Maybe you've had dreams where you're being attacked or chased by a wild beast. Bad dreams and nightmares can rob us of sleep. They can unsettle us. Daniel faced many nightmarish situations, many beasts that threatened his peace. He was exposed to blasphemy as the heathen leaders under which he served sought to press him to worship a foreign god. He was subject to envy, the envy of his colleagues as they were jealous of his various promotions and made it known and tried to take his life. He experienced anxiety. As the dreams he faced often shook him up, he found himself in a, what we would now call a secular state, a multi-religious state where his social conditions were ripe with pluralistic beliefs and compromise. He experienced terror as he was threatened with death, thrown into a lion's den. And several times he and his colleagues were threatened with the potential of execution. He experienced scandals People plotted against him in an attempt to sabotage his reputation. Those are the beasts. By the way, I put that into a little acrostic if you didn't notice. B-E-A-S-T-S. Those are the beasts that he experienced in his life. And now we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 7. 
And Daniel is, as I've mentioned already, he's back in the, in the days and times of Belshazzar. And I'd like to read the entire chapter for you. And as we read it, I want you to be paying attention to two different things. First of all, what were some of the things that terrorized him and by extension, God's people? And then how does God show up in the event and terrorize the evildoers? So what were the terrors he experienced and how is it that God unsettles, terrorizes with his holiness and his presence, evildoers? In the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. By the way, in biblical theology, the sea, which you may like to have a cottage by, or you may like to visit and lay on the beach in front of, you generally have a positive view of the sea. In ancient times, the sea represented chaos. That's where boats sank. That's where leviathans and sea creatures lived in in many mythological accounts. So when you see the sea mentioned, as opposed to the sea-like crystal in the heavenly kingdom that's still and quiet and beautiful, this is not a good metaphor. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So out of the chaos, we have this vision of four monsters. And here's their descriptions. The first was like, it wasn't, but it was like, a lion, and had eagle's wings. And then, I, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the, man, the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Kind of a scary image. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion, meaning power was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong and had great iron teeth that devoured him broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Now it was different than all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Kind of weird, wouldn't you say? Well, goes on. As I looked, thrones were placed in the ancient of days. That is a reference to the Messiah. As I looked, the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne 
was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This sounds a lot like what we read about in the latter part of the book of Revelation. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that were born of the, of the great words that, that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. Their, their rules ended in other words, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is a depiction of God descending into the chaos and destroying and reigning over the beasts who was worshiped by 10,000 times 10,000 and who ultimately establishes an eternal kingdom through which he is honored and glorified. So Daniel then comments as in, in terms of his reaction, this is how Daniel's feeling about all this. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. It's like, well, we understand <laughs> because we'd be rather anxious as well. And the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. It's like, whew, thankfully we have an interpretation. We don't have to make one up. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than the than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the ancient of days came and judgments were given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces as for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 horns shall rise and another arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's an interesting expression. 
but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. That's you. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarm me and my color changed, but I kept this matter in my heart. Kind of an interesting passage, wouldn't you say? So what we call this in theological studies is apocalyptic literature. It contains visions. It contains symbolism and metaphors. And sometimes people disagree on the details of apocalyptic literature for the reason that it can be a little confusing at times. But in terms of broad strokes, it's really not that difficult to interpret. One of the themes that we see in this apocalyptic piece of literature and that we see in other apocalyptic books like Revelation is the terror that God-haters often wreak on the righteous. They do their best to terrorize They do their best to frighten. They want to make your life a living hell, a nightmare. And they resort to all sorts of tactics to do that. So did you notice some of the the approaches? We see in the text, the terror of governments. These beasts are kings over the earth. They're rulers over the earth. In, In verse three, it says, and four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. In verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings that shall arise out of the earth. These four beasts represent the four kingdoms from Daniel's entry into Babylon through to the time of Christ and beyond. So when Daniel went into Babylon, he was under the Babylonians. That's the first beast. Then they crumbled and fell and a new beast rose up, the split kingdom of the Medo-Persians. And then that kingdom eventually eroded. And as history moves forward, the the Greeks rose up. That's the third beast that rises up. And then they sort of crumble and fall. And then the Romans rise up. And they really are unlike in terms of power and authority, the three kingdoms that had gone before because they essentially conquer most of the known world. And it's under their tyranny that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is publicly executed for a crime he did not commit. And the the details of their description symbolize many of the things that took place in human history. The first beast has its wings ripped off, referring to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation as an ox. Remember that account? He had his his wings ripped off. Excavations in ancient Babylon show that winged beasts were common figures used to portray the power of the kingdom and the king. God plucks them off. The second beast is a bear, 
which was raised up on one side, referring to the, the prominence of the Persian half of the kingdom over the, the weaker Medo, Medes side of the, the kingdom. The three ribs in its teeth represent in all likelihood the three major military conquests through which this nation demonstrated its power to the world, which took place in 546 in 539 and in 525 BC. The third beast is portrayed as a winged leopard, which speaks of the speed of Greece's conquest. And the four wings represent the breakup after Alexander the Great's death of the Greek kingdom into four separate kingdoms. By the way, this is all being prophesied by God to Daniel way in advance of these events. Rather impressive, wouldn't you say? The fourth beast was nameless, but points to the Roman Empire. And depending on how you unpack the details of Revelation and some of the details that took place in the first century with the destruction of the temple, some would say also foreshadow an eschatologically yet future kingdom, a tyrannical kingdom under an antichrist-like figure or a series of antichrists who will wreak similar habit on the world. But in this context, minimally, it's, sim it's symbolized by a little horn that will arise in the future and perhaps in the past and malign the ancient of days who is God. The 10 horns are spoken of again in Revelation 17, 12 as 10 kings who along with Babylon may rise up to seek to dethrone God in the end times. And again, I know that some of you in this room are like, I don't know anything about the end times. And some of you have studied it probably too much. <laughs> and so there's various understandings of these eschatological events, and I understand that there can be some confusion and some ambiguity. So some of it is a bit of guesswork. But one thing that we can all agree upon is that throughout history, various individuals and various entities have risen up who have attacked God, who have sought to posture themselves as kings, who have sought to posture themselves as rulers, who have tyrannized God's people who have wreaked havoc, who have rejected God's laws. And time and time again, God's people have suffered under the hands and at the expense of tyrants. Remember Stalin? On a scale of one to 10, how much did Stalin love God? Didn't love him at all. Stalin said, quote, I want God out of Russia in five years. That's what tyrants do. Remember Mao? Mao tried to exterminate God and set himself up as God. In fact, his corpse still lies in state in Tiananmen Square in China and many come and worship it. Hitler felt he was God's agent to kill off all of God's people. He said, quote, Human culture and civilization on this continent are inseparably bound up with the presence of the Aryan. 
If he dies out or declines, the dark veil of an age without culture will again descend on this globe, end quote. You see the patterns? Today, statists want to control every aspect of your life, your bodily autonomy, your health choices, your money, your property, And they've even been so bold as to step out of the shadows and claim authority over the worship and ministry of the Christian church. These are the patterns that we see, the terror that evildoers seek to unleash upon God's people. And then from the, from the prophet's perspective, from the Christian's perspective, there's always that, that terror of the unknown. It's like, okay, well, I know God's in control, but how's this all going to work itself out? And Lord, I'd like a few more answers because this is, these are unsettling times. Well, Daniel experienced that true. This is the guy that went into a lion's den, folks. But he was rattled by what he saw. So, so don't wallow in too much shame if you find yourself at times a little anxious, a little stressed out at the events around you. You're not Superman. You're not Superwoman. We're human. We're limited. We're finite. And the world within which you live can be very unsettling. Let's not fake it and pretend it's not. Daniel, the prophet, was anxious and alarmed because he couldn't make head nor tail. That's a pun. Of the dreams he saw of these various beasts, what the vision meant. He says in verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. It's like, Daniel? Daniel was alarmed. I thought Daniel had it all together. I thought Daniel was nearly perfect. No, it alarmed Daniel. And folks, it it alarms us at times as well. We might know certain truths about God. We affirm that God is in control, but at times life is, is very unsettling. Not knowing when Jesus will return can be unsettling. Not knowing when our suffering will end, that's unsettling. Not knowing when you'll get your job back. That's unsettling. Not knowing what the future holds for our children or our children's children is unsettling. That's why I even hear people at times say, we're not going to have kids because the world is too bleak. That's an error. That's a mistake. God is in control and God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. If you can't, you can't. But if you can, you should. It's a creational command. It's not a cultural command. That's the way life moves. But many people are held back from that because you look at how bleak the world is around them. And and indeed, it can be bleak. We're also terrorized with religious persecution and we're constantly inundated with, with blasphemous Campaigns, blasphemy directed against God, blasphemy directed against God's purposes, against God's creatures. These beasts recorded here were, were yes, known for their brutality in war, but beyond that, beyond their brutality in war, beyond their political skill, beyond their power, the thing that's most disturbing about these beasts is their persecution of God's people. Verse 21, and as they looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. 
prevailed over them? Yeah, for periods of time in history, evil seems to win. Martyrdom has actually happened. People have actually been put to death for their faith. Remember Daniel's colleagues, the God we serve is able to, is able to rescue us. But even if he does not, we won't bow. Let's not name it and claim it. That's believe the best, but understand that God may allow you to suffer terribly for your faith. There will be times in history when persecutors will prevail over us in the human realm. I mean, we we know we win the war, but there's a lot of battles we'll lose along the way. Verse 25, the second part says, and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. The saints of God will be torn down, the text prophesies. Religious customs and laws will sometimes be forcibly abandoned. There will be periods of time when God's people will be given into the hands of evildoers. The text speaks of this happening for a time, times, and half a time. People have interpreted this in various ways. Some people see that a time is one year and a times therefore is two years and Half a time is a half a year. So that's three and a half years. Some people tie it into a tribulation period in the future, sort of the half of that tribulation period. Others see it as a progressive reference to the way persecution unfolds. So a time, sometimes it'll be persecuted and it'll be intense for a time, whatever that season is. Time, sometimes the persecution will will grow, it'll double. It's like now we're into double trouble. And then we jump from this time to times to half a time, which is meant to comfort the believer that even if you have persecution and then the persecution increases, eventually it it will be reduced because God is in control. He'll never give you more than you can bear regardless of your interpretation of this, regardless of whether you believe it literally refer, refers to a three and a half year period or refers to the pattern that God's people will experience in, in times of persecution, what we know is that at the end of it, evil will be cut off. At the end of God's divinely appointed times of suffering for his people, past, present, and future, as people in verse 25, it says, will speak against the most high as they will tyrannize God's people. And it's happened time and time again in human history. Antiochus IV, for example, entered Jerusalem a couple hundred years after this prophecy in 167 BC. And as an act of blasphemy against God, he had a pig burned on the altar of the Jewish temple. You can imagine how sacrilegious that would be. But at the end of the day, guess where he went? He went the way of the dodo bird. He lost, he died, he failed. These things don't feel good. These these events that we experience in life, the, the persecution, the tyranny, we've experienced some of that. Maybe not to the degree that other generations have, but maybe to a greater degree than some of our immediate forebearers have in recent years. And it's hard to take. 
But the good news for us and the bad news for the beasts of the world is that eventually God will terrorize them and he will shield the godly from ultimate destruction. We see the holy terror of God's beauty as Daniel experienced all this horror. He was also awed with a fresh vision and encounter with God. Listen listen to this uplifting description in verses 10, 9 and 10 once again. And as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. He's not squiggling in his seat, wiggling in his seat. He's, He's unrattled. He's still on his throne. He takes his seat. His clothing was white as snow, meaning he retains his purity and perfection. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was, a, was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Destruction, might, power, terror is all symbolized there. In this description, God is using similar descriptions that will be eventually used in the book of Revelation. And it speaks of the majesty of God and of the kingdom of God that invaded this world with the coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not something that we simply are looking forward to. The kingdom of God is now. Because in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has established his kingly rule. He has proven to the world that he has absolute control over all the kings of the earth. Even as they crucified Christ and nailed him to a cross, he still walked out of the tomb three days later. The church that he said he would establish was was established and continued to grow. This is also symbolized, if you remember, by that that great stone that that crushes the statue in Daniel chapter 2. Very similar. The king puts a statue up, God crushes it. The kings of the world symbolize as four four beasts rise up, God crushes them. The holy beauty of God is a comfort to those of us that know him, but folks, it's a terror to evildoers. Sometimes we may have an inadequate view of God. We sort of view him as squishy, as soft, tender, passive, effeminate, meek, weak, wimpy, easily pushed around. God is loving and tender and kind. He's even described at at times as a, like a mother hen guarding her chicks. but he's also a terror to evildoers. He's a wrath to the devil. God is kind and tenderhearted and merciful, but he can also crush you like an ant. And he will ultimately crush those that rebel against him. And that doesn't terrify the believer. That, that's like, he's our God. We love that about him. We are weak, we're easily pushed around, but God at the end of the day will have his way with the evildoer. 
We also see the terror of God's holy power. Even though God, by the way, is sufficient in and of himself to fight his own battles. And he's sufficient in and of himself to evangelize the world. He often uses created agents to accomplish his purposes. He uses his church to preach the gospel. He uses the legions of angels in heaven to do battle with the forces of darkness. This is the depiction here, best as we can tell, that's being referred to in the second part of verse 10. A thousand thousands serve him and 10,000 time 10,000 stood before him. At various places in scripture, we see this kind of language, legions of angels. How many are there? Legions. More than you can count. They are created beings like we are. They're not, they, they, they didn't exist for all time. They were created by God. But the angels of God are God's ministering servants. And here, they are deployed against the forces of darkness. Just as there are demonic battles raging in the world around us, there are also angelic battles raging in the world around us. As God dispenses his angels to do battle with the forces of darkness, behind the scenes on a spiritual level, when nations fall, angels are involved in that conquering evildoers on God's behalf. You could take the biggest tyrant in human history, let him march out onto a battlefield with all of his weaponry and his tanks and maybe even a nuclear arsenal with him. He wouldn't stand a chance against billions and billions of heavenly angels sent from God. Be wiped out like that. When you're afraid, by the way, you can ask for God to send angelic messengers to protect you. Angels do guard God's people. Angels do deliver messages to God's people. Angels do protect God's people. We don't worship angels. It's God who uses them as ministering servants, just like he uses you. If you lead someone to Christ, you don't get, the, you don't get to be worshiped for that. But in the physical world, God uses his physical creatures to do his work. And in the spiritual realm, he uses angels to accomplish his purposes. We have the terror of God's power being manifested here as the evildoer stands no chance against God. And then we have the evil terror of God's judgment. God will not allow evil dictators, atheists, to get away with their heinous crimes against his people. Those that slaughtered the Jews in the Holocaust will ultimately be brought to account even if they escape justice in the here and now. Those that molest children, those that abort babies have a terrifying future to look forward to. In fact, anyone that doesn't bow the knee and surrender themselves to the true King of Kings has a terrifying future ahead of them, unless they repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Multiple times in the text, God's judgment shines through. In verse 10, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. Verse 12, 
as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The kingdoms fell, the people remained for a period of time, but they were greatly diminished. Verse 26, but the courts shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end. Folks, justice delayed is not justice denied. It's not. Justice delayed is not justice denied, not in the spiritual realm. God will judge all who thwart his ways. This is guaranteed by God's word. It's demonstrated in human history. Our job, of course, is to seek justice against God's enemies, not revenge. Not so that we can merely be vindicated, but so that God's purpose and plans through us can be vindicated. There will be no loopholes for those that despise God. Sometimes people try to find loopholes in the Bible to, to excuse their behavior. There's, there's no loopholes with God. If you sin, you'll be judged. Pretty good idea then if you are godless, you should probably repent and avoid God's imminent judgment. And then we have the, the holy terror of God's messianic servant, the one that we now know as Jesus Christ. And we have so much more information about Christ because of the progress of revelation. But here is this, Reference to Christ in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's one of the divine descriptions of God. It's not, to, it's not a reduced description of God, but in biblical theology, it's a divine description of God. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom this, this all sounds very New Testament now, does it not? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We have this messianic vision of Christ coming and participating in God's conquering work, but also reaching all people. And actually that's happened because look around the room. People from all nations sit in this auditorium today because God has arrested you through his Holy Spirit and through his gospel and you've been transformed by it. You are proof that this prophecy came true. There perhaps is also a now but not yet tension to this prophecy because while God has in many respects reached the nations, as we move progressively to the end of time, this prophecy will become increasingly evident, increasingly obvious as one day every knee from every nation will bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And some then will be welcomed into the eternal kingdom and some will be consigned to everlasting punishment and damnation because of their rejection of God. But in the end, every person, every nation will acknowledge that Christ is King of Kings and he is in fact, Lord of Lords. And then we have the gift of reward. There's a reward awaiting for all who remain faithful to God. 
verse 18 and verse 22. But the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom. We have received it. We are receiving it. We will receive it more fully in the future. And possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. There's going to be times perhaps when we suffer. Sometimes our suffering may increase. Sometimes it may be reduced. Life is going to go like this. In the here and now. But in the end, it's straight up. We have this beautiful offer of eternal rewards. In verse 22, the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The kingdom is growing and growing and growing and will meet its zenith in the end. What is the kingdom of God, by the way? I remember being in church as a kid, people like, what's, what's the kingdom of God? It's about his rule. It's about the acknowledgement of his rule, the manifestation of his rule, the invitation of people to surrender themselves to his rule. The invitation for people to acknowledge that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Sometimes people say, I don't serve any king but Christ. Well, what we mean by that, we, don't, we do acknowledge there are kings and queens and prime ministers and rulers in this world. God actually puts them in place. And when they serve as God's deacons, as they're supposed to, we are required to submit to them. We're not anarchists and we're not radical libertarians. I'm my own God, I'm my own master. no. This is not a biblical view of governance. But the king of those kings and the Lord of those lords is God alone. Nothing wrong with being a king or queen, but there's something wrong with being a king or queen if you don't recognize that you are a king with a small K, a Lord with a small L, a leader with a small L, a pastor, small P. I'm the under shepherd, not the over shepherd. Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords and his kingdom is now and it's growing and it's growing and it's becoming more and more obvious. The text goes on to say, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. What part of this don't you understand? What part of this don't I understand? How is this not encouraging news? How is this not life-changing prophecy? How can this not galvanize us in the face of persecution? How can this not give us hope for the future? How can this not encourage us to trust in the living God? if we're struggling with beasts and nightmares and bad dreams and the challenges and struggles of the world around us, filling our minds with the prophecies of the scriptures help to stabilize us and anchor us and give us hope. They remind us to run to God for comfort ultimately rather than temporal things. They remind us to pray for angelic deliverance. We don't pray to angels, by the way. We pray to God. Or we can pray that God would send his ministering servants 
to minister to us. We put thoughts of revenge aside, but we ultimately know and pray for the day when God will manifest his justice in this world and in the next. We take part in God's kingdom by acknowledging in every sphere of life, even if you are a person that has great authority, that God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we take our focus off the unknown and we focus on the known to the glory and honor of God. 